Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the youngest son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Thanks for that reading, Grace. Uh, it is great to be here with you, a uh, different way, uh, perhaps feeling a little bit strange. Uh, all of us are. 
Um, but welcome to church. Um, in terms of the website, there's going to be regular updates on that, so please do keep going there for uh, more information that we'll, be that we'll be providing on an ongoing basis. Uh, that'll give you updates of what things are still running, what things are potentially being shut down. Uh, we'll be keeping our eyes on the media, same as you are, uh, to be able to know that. Uh, also, uh, on the screen will come up the text number. Uh, you can write in questions after the sermon uh, that will go to the deeper podcast uh, for you to be able to ask further information. If there's things that are raised by that that you want to comment on, uh, then please feel free to do that. That's going to be something that we continue to use and potentially modify over time uh, to be able to uh, provide further resources, provide further information about missionaries. Um, so there's a whole lot of things that we're thinking through about how to use these resources that we've already started using, uh, but working out how to use them in an even more effective way long term. As Rod said, we're continuing our series, Radical, uh, looking at Luke's Gospel, chapters 13 to 16. We're coming towards the end of that, chapter 15. This is the biggest chunk of text that we've looked at. Uh, and we might, you might be asking the question, why are we looking at so much in one piece? Uh, hopefully that'll become clear as we go. I, as we always do, uh, recognise that we need God's enabling if we're to understand what he's saying to us in his word. And so I invite you now to join with me in praying, asking both for his help to understand and ability to actually put this stuff into practice. So will you join with me as we commit this time to God? Lord God, we do thank you for the opportunity we've got uh, for technology that allows us to meet, even though we can't meet in person, uh, with the normal group that we would meet with. Uh, thank you that we've got your word, uh, that we can still uh, continue to meet around it uh, and think about how it applies to our life in new situations. We pray that as we're thinking through this passage, uh, a familiar passage, uh, that you'd get, again give us insights not only into what it means, uh, but the things that need to change in our own lives, that you would point out things to us that need to be strengthened, uh, things that need to be removed from our lives, attitudes that need to be altered, uh, so that our lives would truly be honouring to you uh, in all that we do think and say. Uh, so we ask, even in the midst of change, uh, that you'd be at work in us uh, and even use this change, this new uh, feeling and situation uh, to do your good work in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm not what you would classify as a party person, but I can still remember getting up early one Friday morning in September, way back in 1993. Extremely early, that was. It was just after midnight. Later that day, I had to go to an anatomy exam, but I wasn't up early to squeeze in some extra study. I had something much more important to do. I was going to a party. I caught the train into the city and there were thousands of us squeezed into circular quay, all watching giant TV screens as Juan Antonio Samaranch made the famous announcement, and the winner is Sydney. Back then there was no social distancing, which was good because we all went crazy, jumping up and down, hugging one another, celebrating with complete strangers because the Olympics were coming to our place. Now, I don't even know if there were any athletes there that, that morning who actually went on to compete at the 2000 Games. There were certainly plenty of spectators who would go on to watch. 
but more than a million of us, more than a million of us were simply excited that Sydney had won. This wasn't directly about us because we would watch the Olympics on TV whichever city they were held in. We were excited that our city had won, that our athletes were going to have the home side advantage. And that's the thing about many parties. Our parents' birthday, our mate's wedding reception, our cousin's baby shower, we celebrate with them because we're excited for them. The party's not for our benefit, but our excitement for someone else reveals what we think of them. It shows that we value them. But parties can also clarify that the relationship is not good. When Christy and I were first married, we lived in a unit in Sutherland. We were surrounded by other unit blocks. And when neighbours had a party that dragged on past midnight, I admit that my love for my neighbour often ran dry. I remember one party that was still going well after 2am and when we did finally call the police, because we couldn't identify the unit number, there was nothing that they could do. My resentment towards my inconsiderate neighbour clearly showed that we had no relationship. Otherwise, I would have been at the party enjoying the loud music rather than complaining about it. Excited, ambivalent or angry our response to a party is very revealing. And in these three well-known stories that Jesus tells, there's a series of parties. Each party celebrates the return of something of value that was lost. But Jesus is not sharing the details so we'll know how to host a Christian party. He wants us to consider how we feel about the party that is actually already going on. In fact, he asks us, are you coming to the party or not? That's our big question that we're going to think about today. Are you coming to the party or not? If you've looked at our passage in your home group this week, you're already aware that this whole chapter is one extended parable in three parts. It's not three different parables making a similar point. Verse 3 tells us that Jesus told this parable, singular, not parables, plural. It is designed to be read as one unit so that we can see the main point, which becomes clear through the three parts being connected and looked at together. In the first part or first story, 1% of the stock goes missing. Now, if you're a number cruncher like me, you definitely go chasing after the 1%. Other people might think, nah, too much effort. But Jesus says that it's right to leave the 99, to go and find the lost one, and when you find it, verse 4, he calls all his friends and says, come and have a party. Now, no details are given of what this party looks like, but I think we can safely assume that lamb was not on the menu. The point is that if just 1% of the stock is recovered, it is worthy of a celebration. And immediately, in verse 7, Jesus draws the spiritual parallel that if just one sinner repents, there'll be more rejoicing over that than the fact that there are 99 people who don't need to repent. God gets excited when people turn back to him. Now, immediately, the odds are changed. Instead of one in a hundred, 
it's now one in ten. Rather than a lost sheep, it's a lost coin. Now, if 10% of the money in your bank account suddenly went missing, I'm pretty sure that you would notice and would immediately go in search of it. As soon as she knows that it's lost, the woman in Jesus' story gets to work, carefully searching for her missing coin. But searching for lost things takes effort. At our place, when something goes missing, there's a big difference between anyone else having a look for it and a mum look. Sent to their room to look for the, the lost sock, the, the, the lost book. The kids come back sometime after and say, no, nah, it's definitely not there. I've, I've had a good look. And then mum glances from the doorway with her super mum vision, immediately finding it in no time at all. We, we joke about it, but we all know there is a big difference between a casual look and searching for something. We search for something which is lost, that's valuable to us. When we're desperate to get back that thing which is lost. And notice that Jesus again makes the spiritual parallel, showing just how valuable the return of a lost sinner is to God. In verse 10, not there will be, but this time there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So good is it when people come back to God that the angels start to party. In verse 11, Jesus continues, changing the odds yet again. Now it's one in two. This third part of the parable is far longer than the first two parts, but it follows the same basic structure. There's something of great worth that's lost. That which was lost is found. And there's a big party to celebrate it coming back. But this third part goes into much more detail and there's also a number of variations on the first two. Like the other stories, it begins with the youngest son getting lost. But it's not quite so simply simple this time. It's not even an accident. His request in reality says to his dad, I wish you were dead. See, in that time you didn't need to read the will. The two brothers knew exactly what was coming to them when their father eventually died. But as far as the younger son is concerned, his relationship with his dad means so little to him that he would prefer the money that he will get than the ongoing relationship with his dad. Perhaps they did have skiers back then in Jesus' time, not snow or water skiers. It's a modern acronym applied to retired parents spending the kids' inheritance, SKI. This son gets in early so that he can get as much for himself as he possibly can. And amazingly, the dad in Jesus' story accepts his son's request. The son soon goes off to a faraway land and wasted his money on wild living. That's actually what the term prodigal means. Not to come back, but to recklessly squander what you have. The prodigal son, that is the reckless, wasteful son, has his own party on his own terms. Interestingly, no details are given about the party. How bad was he? Did he do drugs and alcohol? Was he hanging out with prostitutes as his brother will later accuse him of? Did he ever wonder regretfully if what he was doing was actually wrong? We don't know the answer to any of those questions because Jesus jumps straight 
to the son's desperate need. When he had exhausted the last of his inheritance, a famine hit. And in his desperation, all he could get for work was feeding pigs, which doesn't sound to us like a whole lot of fun. But there's more to it. As a Jew, Jesus has picked the absolute lowest of possible jobs that a Jew could do. Firstly, he's working for a foreigner, a Gentile, someone whom the Jews considered to be a second-class human at best. To work for a foreigner already showed that he was outside of God's blessing. But worse than that, the pig is also an unclean animal, one on the ban list which Jews were not allowed to eat. And notice in verse 16 that it doesn't say that he ate the pig food, rather he longed to eat it. Now, I haven't seen them plating up any dog food on MasterChef lately, but even the thought of such an action to us is repulsive. And for a Jew to be daydreaming about filling his stomach with pig food is designed to be similarly repulsive. Those hearing Jesus' words would have had their stomachs turned. They wouldn't have felt any sympathy that things hadn't worked out for this younger son. This disrespectful, wasteful, horrible excuse for a son was getting exactly what he had coming to him. Justice had been served. And then the turning point arrives in verse 17. If I can find it. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Here I am starving to death. Unlike the first two stories, this time the dad doesn't go searching for his lost son. Rather, this time, the one who is lost comes home of his own accord. Look again at verse 17, when he came to his senses. Rather than being sought out, this son goes back to his dad and Jesus shows how this can become a possibility. Firstly, the son recognises his own stupidity. Why am I starving to death when the servants back home get treated better than this? I'd be better off working for my dad. And so he rehearses a speech, a speech that is theologically perfect. I've sinned against heaven, that is, against God. He recognises that his treatment of his dad is actually offensive to God. For starters, he's broken the fifth commandment. He continues, and I've sinned against you, Dad. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Too right, we echo. He's finally beginning to understand just how good his dad actually is. Make me like one of your slaves. Yeah, that's more than you deserve. It's a nice speech, an accurate speech. And when he knows what he needed to say, he got up and set out for home. But, and we know what happens. The father has been watching for his son, longing for him to return. And while the son is still a long way off, the father runs to his son, embraces him and kisses him. And the son's speech is cut off before he can finish it. Quick, get the best robe. Not just any clothes, the finest ones we have. Put a ring on his finger, a symbol of authority and of wealth. 
put sandals on his feet, dress him up, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a party. My son was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and he's found. And the party begins. All three of these stories can and are used as illustrations of explaining what it's like for people to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus. It's a helpful summary to say that becoming a Christian is going from being lost to being found. The third part of the parable in particular illustrates a range of aspects that summarise what takes place in this process. All of us begin life in a relationship with a loving father. Yet all of us have turned our backs on God. Some do it blatantly like the younger brother, living a wasteful life. Others just get on with life and live as if God isn't there or as if he doesn't matter. Either way is the truth is that we've all turned our backs on God and as a result we're lost far away from him. Like the younger brother, we need to realise the foolishness of rejecting our ever-generous father. If we will just humble ourselves and return to him, God is waiting with open arms to welcome us back. And he has us back, not as hired servants, but as children, privileged children, loved children. And yet while all of those things are present in Jesus' parable and, and are worth an extended pondering upon, they are not Jesus' main point. If you look back again at verses 1 to 3, the reason that Jesus told this parable is not to explain how to become one of his followers, but because the Pharisees and teachers of the law were muttering about Jesus' acceptance of sinners as his followers. Luke uses two terms in verse 1 to describe these people that were coming to Jesus, tax collectors and sinners. Now, as Aussies, we're not particularly fond of the ATO, but for the Jews of Jesus' time, it was even worse. The tax collectors were collecting money for the Romans, the enemy occupying force who'd taken over their country. So the tax collectors were, in practice, opportunistic leeches, enemy sympathisers collecting money from their own people to fund the enemy army and to fill their own purse. They were traitors against God's people. It would be like the ATO counting out your tax money. One for me, one for Al-Qaeda. One for me, one for Al-Qaeda. It's just a disgusting thought and that's why people hated tax collectors so much. The other term, sinners, which the Pharisees themselves use in verse 2, was a derogatory term for those who didn't live as God desired. So why on earth would Jesus want these people to be with him, for these people to be his followers? In fact, according to his critics, these sinners weren't just listening to Jesus' teachings. Jesus was going so far as eating with them. The ultimate way in that society of saying, I welcome you, you're a part of my group, you're accepted. Jesus was breaking down the barriers when the Pharisees were insisting that they needed to put barriers up. And it's this clash of what is the appropriate treatment of sinners that provokes Jesus' parable. The logic builds through the three parts of the parable. 
one in a hundred, becomes one in ten, becomes one in two. And the spiritual parallel also builds. Will be rejoicing, becomes, there is rejoicing, becomes, becomes what? You see, Jesus stops before he makes the next parallel. Rather than joining in the celebration, the elder brother refuses to go to the party. And this outrageous response of the elder brother is actually the main point of the parable. The details are stunning. The elder brother, in verse 25, comes close enough to hear that the party is going on and then he chooses to stay outside rather than going in to have a look for himself. Verse 26, he calls a servant out to him to find out what is going on. The, the servant excitedly fills him in on the great news to which the elder brother responds by becoming furious. Verse 28, it seems that he'd always suspected that this little brother of his might come back one day. He obviously knew that if that did take place, his dad would respond like this. And he didn't want his dad to ever forgive this little waster of the family fortune. But look again at verse 28. The father, who we've already noted, didn't go searching for the younger brother, leaves the party to go searching for the older brother. When read in the light of the first two parts, this should make us realise that there's actually more than one lost brother. While the younger brother is explicitly called lost by his dad in verse 24, it is clearly implied that the older brother is also lost, just in a different way. The two brothers are contrasted in verse 29. Verse 29. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his, fa his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. The younger brother, whilst far from perfect, realises his own unworthiness as a son and wants to be accepted as a slave. The elder brother, who is a son, thinks he has been perfect and yet considers himself to be treated like a slave. It's the classic ironic reversal. But the older brother is not just resentful of his younger brother. He goes on to complain that his dad is stingy. His dad, the one who holds no grudges. His dad, the one who treats servants so well that it can bring people back to their senses. But the elder son ignores all of that and focuses solely on himself. Holding a pity party, he whinges that he's always wanted to have his own party on his own terms, with his own friends. And so he bitterly grumbles that his dad hasn't provided so that that could take place. He resents that his dad would treat the younger brother so well and yet treat him so poorly. The elder brother assumes, possibly quite rightly, that his little brother has squandered his father's inheritance on prostitutes. And so far as he's concerned, therefore, he's out of the family. Notice in verse 30 that he calls him, not my brother, but this son of yours. And we can almost feel the disgust in his words. 
But it's essential for us to notice that the father has already welcomed his younger son back into the family, back into relationship. And so if the father chooses to overlook the offence, on what basis can the older son continue to hold on to the offence? The inheritance has already been divided. And so the waste has no impact on what the older brother receives. His father responds with an ongoing plea for relationship. I am with you and everything that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. Won't you please come to the party? And there the parable comes to an abrupt ending. Following the pattern of the earlier two sections, we're left in no doubt that Jesus expects the Pharisees to accept sinners, to come to the party. Yeah, you're right, Jesus says. Those you consider worthless have done the wrong thing. Yes, you are right. They're disrespectful. They've wasted all of the good things they've been given and rudely thrown them back in God's face. But despite all of that, if they come back to their father, if they come back to your father, the necessary response is to share his joy that they're back. And if you read on in Luke past the verses that we've read today, you'll see that in the very next verse, Jesus continues on teaching his disciples and we never hear how the Pharisees responded. Does their silence represent their rejection of Jesus' plea? Or is it possibly also because the Pharisees are not Jesus' only target? So it's easy for us to shake our finger at the Pharisees and, and look down our noses at their arrogance. But the parable's sudden ending should also make us ask, how different from them are we? Have we gone to the party? Or are we standing on the outside? Have we ever thought, like the older brother, like the Pharisees, that we're God's good child, the golden-haired one. I'm a nice bloke, so of course God will treat me as a mate. I haven't killed anyone, haven't robbed any banks, haven't molested children, so it's only natural for God to accept me. If we ever start thinking that it's because of how we live or that something within us makes us worthy of God's acceptance, then we're making the same mistake. And from Luke 15, we should hear the stern warning from the Son of God himself that we are not good enough. And the only way that we can be acceptable to God is by accepting his freely offered grace. It's not just the message of this chapter. For weeks, we have been looking at who is going to be at God's banquet. Who are the right people to invite to the party? Where should we sit at a party to show our humility? And Jesus has consistently stunned us with the surprising truth of who is invited, who is welcome, who will enjoy life with God forever. The only way to be saved is by grace. We need it and it is extended to others. And that's where there's a further danger that we can fall into. Perhaps we are ones who have realised our need for God's grace. But then we've thought that somebody else doesn't deserve to be one of God's children because of all the wrong they've done or the beliefs that they hold to. Sure, Aussies need to trust in Jesus, but, but those Muslims, they're terrorists and fundamentalists. 
why would God be interested in them? Oh, sure, us evangelicals are okay, but I'm not sure about those others down the road. Can you see that if we ever start thinking like that, we're making a similar mistake thinking that they're not worthy because of what they do, but we are. We usually call these three stories the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin and the prodigal son. And we assume that the lost son is the younger one. But which son is more lost according to Jesus? If we will listen carefully, the son that is most lost is not in the end the one who wasted his father's money on wild living. The respectable son, the one who stayed at home and and did everything that he was told to but wouldn't come to the party is the one who is in the end in the worst state. He is lost and he doesn't even realise it to come back home. Now I assume that everyone has lost something of value. Many of you have probably had that sinking feeling as you realise the assignment due in a few days has disappeared and been deleted. Uh, The computer crashes and you've lost all your emails and your photos. If we get them back somehow, our tech mate helps us out, and we get them back, we're elated. Sometimes we can even feel this elation for others. While I imagine that none of us actually threw a party, Do you remember how you reacted when the Thai boys were rescued from the cave? People we never met and probably never will, but how excited were we for them, for their parents, that they were rescued from almost certain death? Like I said at the start, the thing about celebrations is our excitement for someone else reveals the status of our relationship with them, what we think of them. The problem is, is when we don't react like that. When we hear the latest news update about another boatload of refugees and we respond, not yes, more people rescued from certain persecution, perhaps even saved from death. Instead, we think, oh no, here we go again. Another boatload of riffraff that we're going to have to look after with my taxes. Can't that jolly government do more to keep them out? So long as there is no cost to me, I'm happy for people to be rescued. But the moment that it could have implications on my wallet, the joy fades pretty fast. Now, I know that immigration policy is more complicated than just opening the doors wide open for whoever wants to come in. They've closed up even more tightly. And in the end, whether or not you agree with my political application, I'm not going to fight too hard with you about. But the spiritual application is undeniable. Not one of us deserves to be in God's family. Yet when Jesus died and rose again, he made it possible for each one of us to return to God, our creator, our heavenly, loving father. Not because we were good enough, but solely because Jesus died in our place, taking the punishment that we deserved for rejecting him. Have you accepted his gift? If you haven't, then you are still separated from God, not a part of his family. And when you stand before him, which you will either do after you, after you die or when he returns, you will have nothing to offer him that will be, make you acceptable to him. Jesus has made it possible, but have you accepted the gift? Don't just write this off as, 
religion. This is a matter of eternal life or death. And if you are already in the family, though you may or may not become a refugee advocate, do you join in the party when you hear that sinners are coming back to God? Or does your attitude to those who currently don't know God reveal something about yourself that you may not have realised before? Do you have a heart like God's or do you have a heart like the Pharisees? Are you searching for the lost, even if it costs you? Are you at the party celebrating those who've returned or are you refusing to attend? Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for this familiar parable. Uh, which teaches us new things as we take the time to stop and reflect on us. They're not necessarily easy things to hear about ourselves. It reveals our attitudes can be wrong, that we can take things for granted, that we can think wrong things about ourselves and wrong things about others. We recognise that we can't do anything to change our own heart, to to be willing to, to be joyful when people come back. Yet I pray that we would understand the incredible nature of your grace, the mercy that you have for everybody. And I pray that that would transform us, that it would make us people that are desperate to do whatever's needed to bring people back, that we'd be excited and joining the party, that there are people even now coming to know you and that there's celebration in heaven because that's taking place. May we join you in your party. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.